Caitlin, did you watch the TV show The Good Place? I did. And I really forking liked it. It's a great show. I said forking. I got it. The premise is that the characters had to earn their way to heaven by doing more good deeds than bad ones. And so your life was basically, it had to be a net positive. Also, you couldn't use bad words. You had to say things like forking. So I think all the time about this one example that they used in the show that 200 years ago, giving your grandma flowers earned you points as a good deed. But today, giving her flowers got you negative points. <laughs> right, because now the flowers are grown overseas and shipped to you and there's all these hidden costs to workers and the planet. Yes, it totally wrecked me. So do you send flowers anymore? Mom, if you're listening, this is why I have still not mailed your Mother's Day gift. <laughs> I don't want to go to hell. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women trying to be good in New York City. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Hi, this is Ibu Patel. 20 years ago, I founded an organization called Interfaith Youth Corps, dedicated to working with young people from different religious and spiritual backgrounds to build a country that is welcoming to all. This year, we are changing our name to Interfaith America with an expanded mission and vision, but with the same goal of making religion a bridge of cooperation rather than a barrier of division. You can learn how in my book, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy, and by visiting www.interfaithamerica.org. Looking forward to working alongside you as we build Interfaith America together. So basically what they realize at that moment on the show is that like literally no one in a couple hundred years or something has gone to the good place or heaven mm -hmm. because the world has just gotten too complicated. Right. The flowers. But also you try to switch to almond milk because of cow cruelty. <laughs> but growing almonds is consuming too much water and causing droughts. There's no truly purely good decision in a really complex world which causes one of our main characters who is a moral philosopher he's my favorite a lot of grief he's great Cheat and he cheaty. really worries about the almond milk but yes he realizes as a moral philosopher the truly good is out of reach like every decision is fraught and has all these unintended consequences it's kind of depressing would you like to be more depressed? Why not? <laughs> exactly. <We're> already... <laughs> Why else would we come here? <sighs> Give me your best shot. All right. We're about to play a game I like to call Do Gooder Jeopardy. So, what are the rules of Do Gooder Jeopardy? The rules of the game are simple and familiar. I'll say a fact, you tell me the question. 
Okay. <laughs> First up, 219 pounds per person. What is the amount of food waste every person throws away? Correct. Which equals 80 billion pounds total or oh 30 to 40% of the American domestic food supply every year. In other words, we literally throw away more than one third of the food in this country. And meanwhile, there are people who are going without food. In our country. Yeah, yeah that is pretty depressing. All right. It's my turn to offer a depressing number. 27,000 trees. What is the number of trees needed every year to keep America's butts clean? (laughs) (laughs) I know this is supposed to be sad, but that is correct. 27,000 trees makes about 7 billion rolls of toilet paper. One person, I should say one American, uses about 140 rolls of toilet paper a year, which seems like a lot to me. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe don't wipe as well. Use a bidet. Seriously. And now I'm going to do magic math. That's roughly 59 trees worth of toilet paper over the lifetime of a woman living in New York City. So each of us, I assume, will be responsible for using up 59 trees in our lifetimes. I hope they're small trees. (laughs) (laughs) Like bonsai trees. All right. I'm going to refrain from offering bonsai facts in this moment, even though I have a few tucked away. And instead, we'll move on with our depressing game. So next, three gallons of H2O. The amount of water needed to grow an almond tree? No. (laughs) One almond. Are you serious? (laughs) That is crazy. I didn't realize that almonds required that much water. Should we stop eating almonds? Yes, and drinking almond milk, basically. And there are 3.2 billion pounds of almonds produced in California each year, 3.2 billion pounds. And in every pound of almonds is about 368 almonds. Uh So 3.2 billion pounds at 368 almonds a pound and three gallons of almond is a body of water about the size of Lake Ontario every single year for almonds grown in California. And this seems like a bad thing for California in particular. It's a state facing a drought. And I'm guessing almond milk isn't much better. I think it takes a lot of almonds to make almond milk. (laughs) That makes sense. Okay, this next one, I'm just going to say it with all the zeros. Okay. One, eight, zero, 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 which is another way of saying 180 billion. Okay. What is the number of aluminum cans used every year? Ding, ding, ding. That is globally 6,700 cans every second. You could stack these cans from the earth to the moon and back 25 times over. That's how many cans we're talking about. It's the biggest fraternity can tower ever. I really have tried to stop buying LaCroix. I got a soda stream. Oh, man. (laughs) I know that I should. I really like the feel of the cold can. I know. I do find these stats really overwhelming, kind of paralyzing. I like almonds. Mm -hmm. I like LaCroix. I Mm -hmm. don't have a bidet and I do use toilet paper. So 
I am convicted on all levels here (laughs) and I really want to be a good person and it feels impossible. Yes, it is impossible. I mean, it is impossible to be perfectly good. Uh, Bible verse is coming to mind. Oh, when Jesus said it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God and news alert, we are the rich people. I was afraid that was the one you were going to say. Yes, we are super rich, much richer than probably anyone was in Jesus's time that he was referring to. Certainly have more resources available to us. And even in our current time, we are globally speaking, maybe not in the 1%, but definitely in the 10%. Yeah. The fact that we have time to make a podcast. It's true. And I think that our wealth and our consumption can clearly be a hindrance to making earth more like heaven and might be making it more hellish. It's hard to face the fact that our choices and patterns and habits, we choose them because they bring us temporary convenience and comfort. Mm -hmm. And in the process of that are making life harder for people who we don't know personally and don't even mm-hmm. see most of right. the time, right. but that are like bearing the weight of our choices for comfort and convenience over everything else. There's no resistance no. <laughs> to choosing comfort. Like if you want to create resistance, it has to be internal because that's really the world, right. Yeah. The world is set up catered to, to want us to keep choosing convenience and comfort because there is a lot of money to be Mm -hmm. made Mm -hmm. by feeding those preferences. Mm -hmm. That's really right. And we don't see it. I mean, I don't see who grows my almonds. I don't see the fruit pickers. I don't see the conditions of the people making the clothing that I wear. It feels very difficult to weigh all of that Mm. over every decision that I make from the grocery store to what's in my closet to what I'm feeding my dog to my transportation, like all of these things, right? Yes. And I think when you feel busy or like you're just trying to manage your life and Mm -hmm. you have to, you have to make certain consumer choices. We have to eat. Right. We have to eat. We have to get from point A to point B. We have to clothe ourselves. We have to pay for Adam and Eve. Yes, I'm sure the Garden even of Eden was more environmentally friendly than what we currently have. Um, we have to kind of go about our lives. Mm-hmm. Seems like there's only so, so much time and energy to devote to figuring out like the better of the options, yeah. at least without making it like a deliberate practice. Yeah, I think you do have to make it a deliberate practice. And I think it's being deliberately obscured from us. So it takes even more Mm -hmm. effort to figure it out. There's also the feeling that some of the problems we're almost certainly contributing to because of our consumption habits are so big that you can start to believe, like climate Mm -hmm. change, global poverty, Mm -hmm. you can start to almost feel like, well, nothing that I do will make a difference. So why even bother? Even though that's the whole problem. (laughs) Enough people have have decided that there's nothing that they can do. Therefore, they're not going to do anything. But just recognizing it maybe starts with my choices, but it can't end there. And if I don't Mm. see the choices making a difference, then is it really worth it? 
I mean, I don't really, be- I believe our choices matter at the very least for like the next generation mm-hmm. of people who live on earth <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and for the planet that we are leaving behind. But it's easy to get stuck in an individualistic mindset. It definitely is. And I think, you know, that's part of America, right? I mean, a big part of the world, of the environment, the culture that we've been brought up in is to be individuals, to live individually, to live independently. And a lot of these things are actually communal issues. Like it's all of us together solving this or making the crisis worse. Mm -hmm. And so we can't individually actually make all of these differences. I mean, it's good for us to make good individual changes in our own lives, but Mm -hmm. these are societal problems that also, that are in many ways compounded by everyone doing their own thing, but, Mm -hmm. and it will require us all kind of coming together to make communal decisions around saving the earth or not. That's actually one of the reasons that I'm excited to talk to our guest today, who's done a lot of work around community solutions to issues of injustice. Today's guest is Sandra Maria Van Opstel. Sandra is a second-generation Latina pastor and the executive director of Chasing Justice, a BIPOC-led movement that mobilizes Christians to live justly. We live in a world as Americans that is all about our comfort and our convenience. Mm -hmm. That is it. We are shaped by that. We make decisions based off of that. And the busier we are and the more leadership and or kind of like things we're doing in our lives, the more we're shaped by that comfort and convenience. Sandra is the powerful leading voice on the intersection of faith and justice. Our conversation with Sandra is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. If you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It goes a long way to helping get the word out about the show. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. listeners might remember, Caitlin, that you went away for a while last summer to write your book. I did go away, but it was not very glamorous. I wasn't in an Italian villa like Diane Lane in Under the Tuscan Sun. Where did you write? I wrote at the desk where I am now podcasting with you, holed up in my apartment and trying not to check Twitter. Okay, so the going away was sort of metaphorical. (laughs) I was going away mentally, yes. (laughs) So besides avoiding doom scrolling... Uh, What else did you find hard about writing your book? I really struggled with the chapter on abuses of power. I knew that I had to write about that. There are just so many ways that celebrities in the church have used their power to harm others. Mm. But honestly, the more I dug into it, the more heavy and even depressed I felt. Well, as someone who gets to report on Christians behaving badly, I definitely get that. They do say that sunlight is the best disinfectant, even if this book isn't what you'd call sunny. As if we'd expect a sunny book from you, Caitlin. (laughs) Fair enough. Sunny or not, I think people will want to read it. So tell our listeners where they can find out more. Thanks for asking. Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church is available now for pre-order at CaitlinBeatty.com. Celebrity for Jesus at CaitlinBeatty.com.
I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're happy today to be joined by Sandra Maria Van Opstel. Welcome to Saved by the City, Sandra. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Thanks for joining us. You talk a lot in your work about sort of living a lifestyle of justice, which I really like as a phrase because it feels to me like it implies something very holistic. It's not just one cause, not just one passion project, but thinking fully intentionally about all the ways that we're living in the world. However, I also think that feels really overwhelming. (laughs) Like, how do we care about everything and also stay sane? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a that's a whole class. <laughs> when I think about the phrase lifestyle of justice, I think less about caring about everything and more about having a life that is integrated. Mm-hmm. Like I think of phrases for example that come from our Latin American brothers and sisters of misión integral or integral mission. Or, you know, maybe in spaces here where we do like urban ministry, we might call that like holistic mission in the sense of that your life is integrated. What you say matches, how you spend matches, where you live matches, how you spend your energy matches, who you talk to. And all of those things make sense with one another. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, I I think I, I try to be the my most integrated self. Mm-hmm. Everything can't be our favorite, mm-hmm. but it's more right. about the different aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. Pursuing this integration and a, a lifestyle of justice what has that looked like for you and your family and your community? Well, I think for me, as a person that grew up in a Latina experience and as the daughter of immigrants, I think it comes from my own story, mm-hmm. you know, starting with just like self-knowledge, knowing who you are, what your social location is, what perspectives you bring, what cultural values you're carrying, what theological perspectives you're carrying, what's your racialized experiences. And so that journey of self-knowledge, I actually think is the first one we all go on. It's mm. like, why do I believe what I believe? Why do I mm. think the way that I do? Why do I have the experiences in the world that I have? You know, really knowing and understanding what you believe and why you believe it is a form of really knowing yourself. Mm. And you can't live a life that's integrated unless you know yourself. Mm. That actually is why like working with college students and young adults in their 20s is exciting to me because that's where we're asking most of those questions about like, is this just because my parents did it? Is Mm. this because I love it? What am I passionate about? And so I think that self-knowledge is just, it's happening in that stage of life in a very Mm -hmm. accelerated kind of intense way. What are some of the core, like key questions that you're asking to help people figure out like, what is it that you really believe in that you want to like, pour yourself into in these ways? I think knowing your social location is just very important. Like, and I think that's harder for people that don't come from communal cultures. Like for those of us folks of color, majority world cultures, most of us operate in a communal way. Mm -hmm. And so it could be everything from our when our Korean brothers and sisters say, I introduce myself and technically my last name comes first. Mm-hmm. I'm a Van Opstel before I'm a Sandra, you know? And so mm-hmm. I think when we're oriented in those kinds of communal cultures, we understand 
our social location as more than our individual preferences, but our actual experience. So I would say for me, that has meant understanding what it is for me to be a Latina culturally who's racially white. So I don't experience anti-blackness in my, mm-hmm. in my woman of color journey. You know, I don't. Who, who grew up with a lot of access to education, but not a lot of access to wealth. And so mm-hmm. those things impacted the way I see the world. It impacts the way I see money. It impacts the way I actually read scripture and understand what's happening in scripture. And my social location, I bring to my exegetical work in scripture. My social location, I bring to my leadership because leadership is 90% culturally located. And so I think when we're able to say like, it's not just me, Sandra, I'm an ENFP, I'm an Enneagram 8, you know, I'm a I'm a woo on the strengths finder, you know, whatever those things are. Mm-hmm, you guys can look those all up. But it's not just about your individual personality. It's about understanding that I come from a people who have a history, who have values, who have ways of knowing. And those things have impacted me. When it comes to living a lifestyle of justice, I, I profoundly and principally believe that the people who have the answers to to right the wrongs are the people that are most affected by those wrongs. So I think the mm. people who have the ability to actually find a way forward when there is injustice are the people most affected by the injustice. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, the farther we are from that experience, the more we have to lean in and listen. And the only way you know where you stand is by having knowledge about yourself personally and the communities that you come from. So even when we're talking about a broad category like women of color. Mm-hmm. I mean, I come from a marginalized history, a marginalized group of people, but I'm a white Latina mm-hmm. that's very educated and grew up adjacent to wealth, even though we never had any growing up. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of learned the ways of the people, you know? And so so mm-hmm. I went to high school with them. I went to college with them. And so I, I very much identify with like the life of Esther, you know, knowing the, knowing the palace, but not really being from that location. Mm. So- my experience is profoundly different than a Latina who's an Afro-Latina who also experiences anti-Blackness, who's also of a different class, for example. She's going to have different perspectives than I am, even though we're both coming from the same shared cultural experience. We have different racialized experiences. We have different class experiences. And so I'm suburban. My friend is urban. And so that those are different locations. And mm-hmm. they give us cues about our role in the conversation. And I think people of privilege, oftentimes we are taught to be at the center of the change. Like we say things, for example, in student ministries that I've worked with, like you're world changers, go out there and change the Mm. world. You know, I said in on a high school graduation of the high school that I I graduated from and I heard from the, from the, you know, from the lectionary from up front, like, you know, you're like a gift to the world. And I turned to my brother, I was like, did they tell us this trash when we were graduating from here? And he's Mm. like, they did. And again, it's like you grow up with this understanding that like the world is broken and you have the answer. And so you're going to come and fix this world if you care about justice, if you even see the injustice. Mm -hmm. So that reference point is actually incredibly toxic for everyone, not just for the people that you're trying to help, but for yourself. Because the reality is that a lifestyle of justice is lived in mutuality with other people and centering those that are most impacted by the injustice. So I know, I'm aware that I was trained in a certain way of thinking through my academic experience and through my social location socioeconomically to believe that I have the answers. Mm -hmm. And my elitism, 
and my entitlement should be checked at all times. So I I know I'm constantly keeping an eye on that. And I receive correction from my sisters and brothers in the church office or in the community gathering when I say something like, you know, a best practice here would be blank, blank, blank. And then they're like, "Uh uh-uh, uh-uh. Best practice is code for white people think, you know? And I'm like, (laughs) okay, 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 I got that. I hear you. Mm -hmm. So I'm not like, what? I'm so offended that they said that to me, you know? I'm just like, okay, I got got it. I, I know where you're coming from. So that that self-knowledge helps me to uh, interrogate myself, lean into humility, all the things that we don't like to do, you know, mm-hmm, right. we're changing the world. Yeah. I would maybe characterize social media as a, as a mixed bag when it comes to justice work and advocacy. Like on one hand, it's brought a lot of people together. It's raised a lot of awareness around issues. And then on the other, you get maybe a lot of armchair activism and a lot of arguing. So how do we mobilize people beyond tweets and into personal and real life investment in these issues and causes? Yeah, you know, that has to do with what you do in real life and in proximity to others and being honest with yourself about how that's happening. Like, how am I doing this as an auntie to you know, the the kids in my neighborhood? How am I doing this as a friend to someone who is experiencing injustice in the workplace? So for me, it really has to do with what actions have I taken? And I would see it primarily with my time and my treasure, you know, and my influence. Those are the places I'm looking at. Like, Mm. how is this care and concern for, you know, the criminal justice system and those who are incarcerated lived out in where I choose to invest my finances? Because most Mm -hmm. of our funds at most of our brokers are investing in private prisons. So why would I go to a march and protest and retweet or repost somebody's thing about incarceration and then put tens of thousands of dollars into an investment that's enslaving people? Mm -hmm. Why would I do that? And so I think looking at where is my money going? Where am I banking? Where am I shopping? How am I shopping? Am I leaning into a life of simplicity that frees me up for generosity with my finances? Not just like, oh, did I give 10%, but mm-hmm. have I gone before the spirit of God and asked like, how much am I allowed to keep of this money? Mm-hmm. And what do you want me to reinvest into the things that you're doing in the world? Mm-hmm. I think those are questions we take on kind of one at a time. It's like, yeah, I, I the first place we started with was like with our shopping. So there are stores I haven't mm-hmm. been to in 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Because I know that I know that I know that they <laughs> that they exploit both international workers and the ones that are in our country. So I'm like, I'm not going to give my money there. And there are websites for that. You can Google, literally just Google like ethical sourcing or, you know, mm-hmm. ethical companies. I know that purchasing a new computer every time I feel like mine is too sad or a new phone when the new, next one comes out impacts not only my finances, but it impacts real people that are mining for the minerals that go into our computers. Mm -hmm. And so I can't say that I'm an anti-racist here that's doing a bunch of great things and then have a lifestyle that actually contributes to the enslavement and the exploitation of small black children somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so there's only so much you could do, but it's like once you know, then you're responsible to like (laughs) live out of that knowing. I don't know if anybody else here watched Insecure, but... There's this like moment in the first season where 
this guy is like making fun of this girl because he like runs into her at the grocery store and she's like standing in an aisle paralyzed over which like laundry detergent to buy or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. He was kind of like teasing about the white guilt around that. But that's how I feel a lot. I like feel paralyzed over like what to do in some of these instances, which laundry detergent to buy or like whether or not to get new shoes or these different things that, you know, I want to live the most ethical life I can. And it also starts to feel like very impossible in a way. And I wonder how you would coach us through that. Yeah. You know, I... (sighs) I mean, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And that's why, you know, everything, you can't do everything all the time. It's just exhausting. Even thinking about it makes me tired. I think fundamentally it starts with, for me, again, identifying the self-knowledge and like kind of communal knowledge and cultural knowledge. We live in a world as Americans that is all about our comfort and our convenience. Mm -hmm. That is it. We are shaped by that. We make decisions based off of that. And the busier we are and the more leadership and or kind of like things we're doing in our lives, the more we're shaped by that comfort and convenience. And so Hmm. I think to name that, like these are the gods that that we are putting, Hmm. the idols that we're putting in a room, because living a life of justice is not comfortable and it is not convenient, but it is full of freedom and joy. So I would say, yes, absolutely. When we started making cuts on our budget, when we started changing our like, do you know how many passwords I had to change when we changed our bank last year? Mm. And I'm like not technologically savvy. So I was really like stressed out and anxious and like I was having to melt down over changing passwords. And my partner came to me and was like, you know, you like are willing to go into the street where there's like danger, like physical danger, but you're like falling apart because you're inconvenienced about the passwords. So it's like, okay, yes, clearly I have problems. So I think by naming that, like just giving, I, I believe that we give that to the Holy Spirit and we say, free me from this. I mean, I believe it's a spiritual act of liberation when we when we do this journey. I think about it this way, you know, like in the same way that, you know, people say like, oh, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You, you, you took more food. But the reality is our stomachs expand, which is terrible. You know, especially Mm -hmm. in the quarantine when you're wearing yoga pants most of the time. But like it expands, actually. It's a muscle. Mm. I believe that our hearts are the same way when we come before God and we say, expand my ability to hold what is happening in the world and expand my compassion. Mm -hmm. And I don't see it then as like trying to fit all these things into a box that exists. I see it as like a stomach (laughs) that just has a bigger appetite. You eat one thing at a time. You do one thing at a time. But you, in community, I think, you ask like, well, what's next? Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, it's overwhelming. But I honestly think that every person that says they follow Jesus and hurt, hears the words of Jesus should have an open budget bank account with at least two other people. Mm. Because that would make us very serious about whether mm. or not we really want to be accountable to how and what we're spending. <laughs> wow. Roxy, do you want to get a joint bank account? I guess we might have to. We can. Let's talk. (laughs) (laughs) But we so we did that in small groups. We did like, Mm, wow, bring your budget, bring your spending, share with one friend in the small group and ask for an area of prayer that you want to grow in. One area, one thing Mm -hmm. you want to do, you know. I really like, Sandra, that you're touching on the fact that our preferences for comfort and convenience are ultimately 
kind of spiritual issues. You you identified mm. these as gods. As we go down this you know journey of justice and pursuing a lifestyle of justice, are there spiritual practices that you would encourage us to lean into that would prevent us from being overwhelmed and burnt out? Yeah. I mean, the thing that keeps me from being overwhelmed is proximity to those most impacted by injustice, proximity to the th- those who are financially disenfranchised. That actually mm. keeps me from being overwhelmed because their spirituality somehow allows them to live in a world where they're asking, how am I going to feed my family this week? Mm-hmm. Something about the way they understand God and the world and themselves as God's created allows them to live in that place with some sense of God's presence. And that's not to um, romanticize poverty at all, but to say Mm -hmm. that the kind of resilience that comes out of that space is a resilience that most Western faith needs Mm -hmm. because our, our resiliency is pretty anemic. And I think that the spirituality of those who have always been under marginalization, oppression, uh, insecurity in the sense of like war and, you know, just their safety. Mm. I think if we had centered their spirituality during the last two years, we would have come out differently. Mm. So for me, that's key. Like I go to worship every Sunday and most of the people in the room are not in the same socioeconomic space as me. Mm-hmm. And I watch them worship and I listen to their prayers and I hear their testimony and I'm like, okay, God is here. God is God is not absent. And I go with study scripture with my friends who are behind bars. And those brothers are like a lifeline to me of what it means to really understand God's word and God's truth from a place where everything around you tells you maybe it's not true at all. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, and it's their exegetical work, their theological reflections in class that really nurture and sustain my hope. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned before we started recording that you're working on a book about spiritual practices to sustain justice among Black activists and other activists of color. So what are some of the spiritual practices that you're really encouraging people who are in this work, who are really fighting in some ways for their own survival, who are already part of a marginalized groups? Yeah, I think for us, you know, it's like returning back to the spirituality and the practices of our ancestors, like knowing that we're as spiritual beings are embodied, like we have to be able to like physically like touch your shoulders, feel your face, you know, like we are people like in the flesh (laughs) and Jesus came in the flesh. And so the flesh is not a bad thing, you know. And so I think understanding what's happening in your body, like Hmm. caring for your mental health, taking bike rides and walks, eating delicious food, you know, mm. all the things that we that we do for breathing. Mm-hmm. A practice I do like almost every day is just I sit and I breathe for five minutes, mm. especially when I feel anxious. Like sometimes, mm. again, like I work at home, so my partner might walk through the house and see the, how tense my shoulders are. And I'm like, I just got off this coaching call. You wouldn't believe the pe- things people have to go <laughs> mm. through. Oh, my gosh. Like, And, and then he'll mm. just say, let's breathe together. And you know, pick a word of intention, like a scripture or an aspect of God, if you want to, if that's helpful to you. But I think just the act of breathing actually changes what your body and your mind are experiencing. So I think embodiment is something that many activists of color are talking about right now. What does it look mm-hmm. like to, for me to actually take care of my body? Again, particularly because Western 
faith has been so intellectualized and so cerebral. Mm. And so that's one thing I would say, like, naps are a gift to your family and your friends and your work, mm-hmm. you know, like, and to, to pay attention to those things. You know, people that want to make a difference, they're typically like really driven. And we feel like we must always keep working. But the reality is that those injustices are massive. They're systemic. They're generational. They're hundreds of years old. And we are not God. Mm. And by stopping and acknowledging that and Sabbathing and, you know, doing all those other things I talked about, I think we we shift the the power in our mind back to the one who has the power. And then we figure out our place in that. Um, I'm not going to end global oppression in my lifetime. I mean, I want to. Who doesn't want to? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to make it right for immigrants and refugees. We can't even pass you know, the DREAM Act. So I don't even know what we're doing here, you know, so, but I know that my worship of God and my, my connection with Christ requires that I head in that direction as much as I can for their freedom and for mine. This work of justice is for all of us. It's to free us of these idols that we hold on to, to invite us into a solidarity and a healing and a mutuality as the created community. And so as long as I can, I'm going to keep taking one step at a time. (laughs) Well, thank you for helping us envision specific steps that we might be able to take and that our listeners can take as well. Yes. Thank you for, for coming on. And as Caitlin said, helping us think more about like what it would look like to pursue this lifestyle of justice. So thank you. Thank you, guys. It's been great to be with you. Caitlin, are there any ways that you've adjusted your lifestyle in recent years as you've learned about some of these hidden costs or consequences of our lifestyles? I have definitely bought fewer clothes over Mm -hmm. the last few years. Part of that probably is related to the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) But not buying like fast fashion clothing, mm-hmm. buying clothing that I know is going to last and then just buying less clothing. Mm-hmm. I have not gotten into the thrifting yet, really, but maybe that's the next step. Shout um, out to a season one episode with... <laughs> yes. Hey, Whitney. Our friend Whitney yes. is really into... She's the thrifting maven. I canceled my Prime membership this year. Oh, bravo. I try to buy as least amount of po- as possible from Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then this is not, I, I guess it is a choice, but it's also just the nature of living here. I don't have a car. Mm-hmm. Initially, that was really hard to imagine living here. Like, right. I need this to get around. And you realize you don't. And I do think about, you know, I walk most places or if I need to, I'll take the bus or the subway and those are better. Uh, Those are much more efficient means of transportation. They're also more communal than a car would be. Mm -hmm. What about you? Um, Besides the soda stream? (laughs) Yeah, I uh, similar things. Um, I clothing has been a big one. I order very few things from online, which I had gotten to a point where Mm -hmm. that was like, the way that I was getting most things. And now I get almost none of like the daily things. Like I don't order groceries online and I don't get my toilet paper or my paper towels or all these other things that I was just kind of like had gotten used to ordering online. I really try to buy those things locally. Like 
You mean instead of supporting Amazon? Right. I think I want to support locally. And I also like local places get deliveries in bulk. And so it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's less of a, of a cost to the environment to shop locally. And I've just really, really tried to be a super generous tipper, um, which mm-hmm. I think because New York is so much run by service, the service industries, like, mm-hmm. um, and the cost of living here is so high. Um, like if I, if I order takeout, I really try to tip, you know, well beyond what I would tip in a restaurant. You know, if I get a manicure or a pedicure, I try to tip like almost a hundred percent. Like I really try to tip generously here. Wait. <laughs> Go back. <laughs> If you get a pedicure, which is going to be around 50 or 60 bucks, you also tip 50 or 60 bucks? Almost. I mean, I... <laughs> That's amazing. It's too... I mean, I really do it with manicures because manicures are... If you're not getting a gel manicure, manicures in New York are really inexpensive. Like you're talking like $10, $12. So I, <laughs> I would absolutely do 100% on that. If I'm getting like a $50 pedicure, like then I would tip maybe just maybe not quite a hundred percent. Um, but I'm still going to tip well more than like, I probably mm-hmm. would tip close to 50%. I mean, I, I really try to be generous in that, which is also a reason I don't get many petties very often, <laughs> but it's a way to recognize like how New York runs on service people. Yes, exactly. And so I just want to be, I, I remember reading somewhere, um, whenever I say somewhere, I mean, Twitter. Um, I remember some <laughs> reading someone say that like, giving that extra couple of dollars or that extra, like being a generous tipper costs you so much less than it means to the person Mm -hmm. who's receiving it. And I just really try to think that way. So Mm. I think the pandemic helped a lot of us do this, like helped a lot of us Mm -hmm. think more deeply about the ways that we were operating Mm -hmm. in the world and consuming. It sounds almost sad, but I feel like I've shrunk my life. Like I feel like I've really Mm -hmm. tried to make a smaller footprint. I'm trying to just generally be more local in everything that I do, including like where I'm investing time and energy. Um, I'm not traveling as much. Um, and mm. you know, I'm just really trying to think smaller in a way, um, mm. which has been, it's been a challenge, but mm-hmm. I think it's good. One thing that I took away from our conversation with Sandra is that this, this pursuit of justice is more than just about individual consumption habits. I think that that mm-hmm. is important. But more deeply than that, justice is about relationships and proximity to people who are marginalized. And I think Sandra Mm -hmm. practices what she preaches Mm -hmm. in that regard. I thought that was really good too. And I think because I think these things are connected, like I I think as we were talking about earlier in the show, like I think we are deliberate, like the cost, the human costs in a lot of ways of all of these decisions, even if they are decisions around what you're consuming, like the human cost of that is obscured from us, both Mm -hmm. the human cost of labor, but also like the human cost of climate change, like all of these things, like we don't think about when we pick up a pretty package or whatever. But Mm -hmm. I think you do think about it when you are living close enough to the people who are affected by it and you're not living in a rich bubble, you know, like if you are seeing the co- the consequences of those things on the communities that mm-hmm. do bear the brunt of those costs, then you're going to think differently. I don't know that I'm going to share my bank account information with you though. <laughs> That's like a step I'm not ready you know, for yet. Justice is a journey and we are not, we are not there yet. <laughs> Saved by the City is a religion news service production. 
The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. $180 billion is the same amount would mean that you could go to the moon and back. (laughs) We're not riding on the cans.